really enjoyed the uh, message that Justin brought. The question, are you living like you're saved? You know, the Ten Commandments are a good starting place for that. Pretty basic. Whoever would have thought that those would be dismantled? And uh, yeah, the, the war is on. When you think about it, we're in a great fight uh, over our values and our way of life. And it's building, building, building all around us. And it's going to culminate, of course, someday in the great final battle between good and evil, between the children of the serpent and the children of God. It's not only got a spiritual component and dynamic, it's actually got a way of playing out even in the natural realm. So get your game on. The war is here and we're in it. So, and what we're called to do is live like we're saved, full of love, full of joy, walking in the commandments of God, being empowered by the Spirit to walk in those commandments. No one walks in them perfectly. That's why we have an atonement in our Messiah. Uh, but we're learning how to walk that out. And we're the light of the world. And our job is to bring in a lot of people before that kind of uh, final conflict. Bring them into the kingdom. And to encourage each other, to encourage each other to continue to walk out this journey of faith that we all share in together. So I want to encourage everyone with that. Hallelujah. In Messiah, we are one. In Messiah, we are saved. In Messiah, we're being raised up as his people to be used for his glory. And it's just an awesome grace that we get to participate in. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. It's amazing in every way. It makes everything tolerable. All the, all the junk and stuff that happens, even the stuff we do and feel bad about, right? Yeah, his love covers all that. Keeps us steady as we press on to the final goal of that homecoming. Hallelujah. And that's not even the end, right? That's the beginning of a new beginning, a new heavens and a new earth. Looking forward to that too. All right, so... I am in a sermon series on the kingdom of God, and this is my fourth in the series. Um, if you haven't heard the previous ones, please uh, download those at some point and uh, reference those. It gives uh, a little bit of a context of where I'm going now. And so if you have a lot of questions, it might be related to the previous ones that you haven't heard. So if you haven't, go back and get those. That'll fill in a number of blanks. So today I want to talk about the church and the kingdom. The church and the kingdom. We noted in our previous teaching, the people's kingdom, that Daniel prophesied that the Son of Man would receive God's kingdom and then later would actually give it to his followers. We discovered that his people, right, his people, were those Jews and later Gentiles who received him as their king. Jesus called them his little flock. It was synonymous with the antecedent flock called the remnant of Israel in the Tanakh. This little flock is his ecclesia, his church, if you will. And it's his church that receives the kingdom. So um, our discussion today, or our talk today, is going to revolve around that idea that his church receives the kingdom of God. 
I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 16. This is kind of the storm center of exegesis when it comes to that drama of the people of God and, and the ecclesia of God and what all of that means. So I'll begin reading in verse 13 of Matthew 16. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The Greek word is ekklesia, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now there's a lot in that verse, and let's unpack it and see what this storm center is all about. Peter, he is the rock among Rocks. It says, I also say to you that you are Peter. The Greek word actually means rock. In, in the Greek, it's a rock, like a stone, a pebble, or a, like a river stone. It, or it, it's, 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 it's small uh, in relationship to, let's say, a boulder. It says, you are Peter, you are a rock, and upon this rock, and this word in the Greek is different than the word for Peter. It's the feminine form. And the feminine form of this word that we translate rock is picturing or conceptualizing a huge, huge, like jettison of rock coming off the side of a mountain. It's going to be like just a huge rock. Like you see at red rocks, for instance, those rocks up there. So he says, Peter, you're like this little stone. And upon this huge jetting stone, this immovable stone, right? I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean about the phrase, upon this rock, right? What's that in reference to? Well, Peter is a rock among rocks, if you think about it. He's an apostle. And we're told in Ephesians that the church is actually built upon a foundation of stones. Let's read that for a moment. Ephesians 2, 19-21. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having, built, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The foundation of his church are the apostles, his 12 that followed him, and the prophets that joined them. These are the foundations, the apostle and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being what? The chief cornerstone. He's that rock that 
is huge that jettisons off a cliff or out of the side of a mountain. He says, Peter, you're a small rock, but upon me, the chief cornerstone, everything will be built. In fact, the entire church that I'm building is based on me and flows through the apostles and the prophets. This is the foundation that I'm going to build upon, in whom the entire building, tightly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Peter was a gatekeeper of the kingdom, as was the rest of the apostles and prophets. Yeshua, <coughs> excuse me, he's the chief cornerstone. There's no stone like him. He's the cornerstone so that the whole foundation is firm and unshakable. And upon him, everything's being built up. Peter being one of those foundational stones upon that cornerstone. And the powers of hell, which is the realm of death, shall not stop it. He's going to grow something that, that the strongest force in the universe, the principle of death, right? It's everywhere. Everything is deteriorating. Everything breaks down. Everything disappears. That's one of the laws of physics. There's nothing greater than hell itself or the realm of the dead. Everyone goes there, the righteous and the wicked. We're all going to die. That's just a fact of life, right? We're all going to, and I'm, I'm closer than ever before. I can't believe it. Me and my wife, we talk about this all the time now. When you get older, you know, you just go to a bunch of funerals. When you're younger, you go into weddings. When you're older, you go to funerals, you know? But we're, we're all going to, you know, end up there at some point. Jesus says, even that principle of death, which permeates the, the universe, can't stop what I'm doing, can't stop what I'm building. What I'm building is even stronger than death itself. I will build my church. The Greek word, ekklesia, it means assembly or congregation. In the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation by Jews, for Jews, of the Tanakh, some 200 years before Jesus was walking the earth. If you go to the Septuagint and look for the word for a congregation of the Lord or the gathering of the Lord or the assembly of the Lord, you'll find that they translate that word. The Hebrew word is kahal. They translate that word kahal with the Greek word ekklesia or ecclesia. So the Greek-speaking Jews use the word ekklesia when translating the kahal, the congregation of the Lord. Approximately 96 times they do this. And so what do we learn in that? What we learn is this, that this Greek word, ekklesia, was used in reference to describing Israel as being gathered by the Lord out of Egypt to become his people. That's the ecclesia of the Lord. And that really is a game changer when you think about it. In Acts chapter 7, this verse is so hotly debated because the ramifications are, are just, they represent so much change, right? It says this, speaking of Moses in the wilderness, it says, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness. This is going to be slide 19. 
This was he, or this is he that was in the church in the wilderness. Note that. Isn't that fascinating? The church in the wilderness. Speaking of Moses, some 1,500 years earlier, the writer here is saying there was a church already in existence. How many people were taught that the church came into existence in Acts chapter 2? That the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost? That's kind of a half-truth. It was birthed at Pentecost, the one that preceded Acts 2, 1,500 years earlier at Mount Sinai. That's when the ecclesia of the Lord, the church of the Lord, which was in the wilderness, was birthed, and Moses led it. The church began with Moses. The church, the ecclesia of the Lord, is none other than Israel. She is the assembly of the Lord, the congregation of the Lord, the ecclesia of the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? That's a game changer. Israel's the church? Think about that for a moment. That's amazing. Now, concerning Israel, Paul says this, and he quotes Isaiah. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, that's slide 21. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. God says, I've gathered her out of Egypt to be my people, right? And though her numbers be as the sands of the sea, yet will I save only a remnant. What does that tell us? That only a small number of those that he brought out of Egypt are going to be saved. Only a small number of Jewish people will be saved. Not everyone who is Jewish is going to be saved because they're Jewish. It's only Jewish people who believe in the Messiah are the ones that are going to be saved. And that's relatively a small number. And from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, it is confirmed that God is only going to save a remnant of Israel. This whole idea of the remnant, over and over and over, you're going to find a small group of Jewish believers, right? You're going to find a small group of Jewish believers in every generation. There were faithful Jews in the days of Moses. The bulk of the people were unfaithful. In every generation, there were believing Jews, but the bulk of the nation was pretty rebellious. But God had for himself a remnant of Jewish believers in every generation. And he called them, through the prophets, the remnant of Israel. It's the remnant of Israel that is saved. So what is a remnant when you think about it? Well, it's kind of like an Israel inside of Israel. It's a group of Israelis inside of Israel. A smaller group of Jews within the larger group of Jews. That's the remnant. The Israel within Israel. Jesus called the remnant in his day by another term or another phrase, the little flock. He called those few who were believing in him the little flock. 
the flock within the greater flock, the greater flock being Israel. It's basically a synonymous term with remnant of Israel. These were the believing Jews that he had gathered to himself when he walked this earth. And this little group, this little flock, exploded with growth. Remember, remember the parable of the mustard seed? Yeah. Over a period of time, it becomes larger than any of the garden plants. In fact, it towers over all of the garden plants. And the leaven that was hidden in the, in the dough permeates all the dough, right? Another parable of the kingdom. Yeah, describing the little flock, starting as a little flock, but by the end, it's huge. No one can even count it. Yeah. Though greater Israel rejected him, many Jewish people believed in him. In fact, Paul said much later after the resurrection that thousands and thousands of Jewish people believed in Jesus and were zealous for the law. They had come to faith through Jesus. And many of the thousands and thousands that came to believe were also priests. In other words, it wasn't just the common people, the common Jewish people that were believing in Jesus. Many of the educated priests within the priesthood, within the temple service, also believed that Jesus was who he said he was. The son of the living God, the Mashiach, Emmanuel, God with us. So that little flock stays little for a very short period of time and then just blows up, just grows exponentially. And after many Jews were coming to faith, the door to the Gentiles swung wide open and in came multitudes of Gentiles that would vastly outnumber the Jewish believers. Like Paul said, this kingdom offer was to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And like the mustard seed analogy, his little flock of Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles has grown into approximately 2.6 billion people. Yeah, it's no longer a little flock. It's the largest kingdom on planet Earth, bar none. No close seconds. Now keep in mind that when we talk about the little flock in the days of Jesus, he's using that synonymously with the idea of the remnant of Israel that precedes it. He's also using the term church, ecclesia, as a, as a term that functions synonymously with little flock or remnant as well. If you can keep that in view, then all of, all of a sudden these texts take on new meaning. Now let's continue. Let's look at Peter in Matthew 16. We'll go to verse 19. This is where the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to him. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are they? What do they represent? Keys. In this context, 
The phraseology keys to the kingdom is in reference to authority. To have keys is synonymous with having authority within the house. Signs and wonders. So we have uh, this idea of authority being given to Peter. Authority to govern the people of God, specifically the little flock that's going to get quite large quite fast. Peter is being granted authority to govern this little flock that's going to just grow like no other flock. That's a big deal when you think about it, right? Peter the Jew, who's also sent to the Gentiles along with Paul, is the one that's first to receive authority in the kingdom of God. I want to give you a verse that kind of clears up this idea about keys being authority issues uh, within the biblical text. This is Isaiah 22, 15 to 31. The Lord all-powerful is sending you with this message for Shibna, the prime minister. Shibna, what gives you the right to have a tomb carved out of rock in this burial place of royalty? Uh, the prime minister is pretty full of himself. He's become kind of an autocrat, and he's abusing his power, and God's going to replace him. So the prophet comes to him with these words. None of your relatives are buried here. You may be powerful, but the Lord is about to snatch you up and throw you away. He will roll you into a ball and throw you into a wide open country. I love the imagery. I'm going to roll you into a ball, you know? Okay. Where you will die and your chariots will be destroyed. You're a disgrace to those you serve. The Lord is going to take away your job. He will give your official robes and your authority to his servant, Elikim, son of Helkiah. Elikim will be like a father to the people of Jerusalem and to the royal family of Judah. And now here's our text, verse 22. The Lord will put him in charge of the key that belongs to King David's family. No one will be able to unlock what he locks and no one will be able to lock what he unlocks. Yeah, the imagery of a key, the metaphor for authority and power. And this is in reference to David's palace in Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm going to give to you the key to King David's palace. What you unlock, no one can lock. What you lock, no one can unlock. The authority over David's palace and kingdom, if you will. This is a symbol for authority. Keys are symbols for authority in the domain of God. I'll give me another passage, Revelation chapter 3 and 7. This is what you must write to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. I'm the one who is holy and true. And I have the keys that belonged to David. When I open a door, no one can close it. And when I close a door, no one can open it. Listen to what I say. I took this pastorate about 28 years ago. 
And I was in my 30s, I think I was 35. Uh, and I became senior leader of the congregation. And I felt pretty, I, I felt pretty uh, inadequate in, in, in the sense of, I, j- I just felt like I was still really young at 35 and lacked uh, uh, the experience needed to lead a congregation. And so I was a little bit insecure as a senior leader in that first year. And it was a provisional year. I was on like, you know, a provisional track that if I could complete it, then I could actually have the job assignments. And so I worked hard that year and I had a team of leaders that I inherited and leaders are strong and they like to kind of like test the new leader. And so I had a lot of tests that I'm trying to pass. And I had one particular leader who was very influential on our staff and um, she didn't like where I was going. We were transitioning the church into a messianic church. And, um, and I was commissioned to, to do that. But it represented too much change. And she didn't want that. And she didn't like the change that was coming. For instance, we were embracing all of the Lord's holy days in place of the traditional days that most Christians uh, observe. That's quite upsetting for a lot of reasons and for a lot of people. And so she wanted to make sure that I could not take the church there. So she began to give a bad report to the senior pastor who was mentoring me behind my back without my knowledge, going to him saying, you know, Pastor Mark's doing this and now he's doing that and this is what he said the other day. And she's doing everything she can to make sure that I don't pass the tests. She has a lot of influence. And I finally figured out what she was doing, and it was a little bit too late, and she sold a bunch of lies, and I thought, you know what? I don't think this is going to work. I don't think I'm going to make it. This thing's way too complicated, too deep, and she has too much influence. I was at a conference down in Colorado Springs, and it was a charismatic conference, and uh, they had a prophetic workshop, and people were going around prophesying over each other. I'm standing there, and some little lady came up to me. She was like about four foot one, you know. And she had been praising and dancing and twirling and everything. And she finally makes her way over to me. She's kind of like staggering, comes up. And, and on her dress is just a slug of snot. I mean, she somehow, I don't know what happened, but she was all beside herself. And, you know, so she had this thing on her dress. I'm thinking, man, I can barely even look at her. You know, I thought, what is this, you know? And and then it was like the Lord uh, reminded me, um, don't discount the message because of the messenger, you know? doesn't matter. Don't be offended with the messenger. I gave Balaam a donkey, you know? So anyway, I'm, I'm trying to listen to her. She says, I have a word from you, from the Lord, for you. This is for you. It's so strong, you know? So I said, okay, well, you know, what is it? She says, uh, the Lord wants you to know that he has given you the key to David's house. And that house represents something in your life. I don't don't know you. I don't know what you do. uh, But the Lord's wanting you to know that you have the key to that house. And what you lock will remain locked. And what you unlock will remain unlocked. You go forward. Use the authority that God gives you. Have faith, have courage, and don't look back. Man, I walked out of there a different person. I did a 180-degree turnaround as the senior leader. I remember that day things changed for me. 
And I came back with the confidence that, you know what? God has called me to lead this community. I'm being mentored by the senior pastor. And this is my calling. And nobody's going to take that away. No one's going to lock up what God has unlocked for me. And no one's going to unlock what he's locked up. And I remember going back and just having this confidence. I didn't worry about her anymore. I just trusted in what God was doing. It was amazing. God turned that thing around on a dime with like in a week. And she got in so much trouble with the Lord. She was, she got, she, she got all, had like a mental breakdown. She had to take time off from work. She couldn't even talk anymore. She was, she was just such a mess. And she just was so frightened with that, that she got on her knees and just said, Lord, what is going on? I don't even know what's going on. And I'm having this like anxiety attacks and now I can't even speak. And, you know, I don't know what's going on. You know, help me, heal me. And she said, the Lord told me, I'm going to heal you. But first, you need to make a phone call. She said, Lord, to who? I'll, I'll, I'll call anyone. What do you want? Who do you want me to call? You know, I, I, I want you to heal me and I'm desperate. Yes, I'll call. Who, who do you want me to call? The Lord told her, you call Pastor Mark and you tell him that you've been lying and that you've undermined him and that you had an agenda to basically ruin his, his calling, his opportunity. She says, so I've called you and I'm telling you right now, this is what I've been doing. This is what I've been saying. And I've told the senior pastor, and I'm so sorry. And it's wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And I got too deep, too fast, and it got out of control. And, and now I'm running scared because I don't know what's going on with me. But you know what? I'm repenting. I'm apologizing. Please forgive me so I can be healed. I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. On one condition. I need you to make a phone call now. I need you to make a phone call now. I said, you call the senior pastor and you tell him what you told me. And as you do that, I release you and forgive you in Jesus' name. So she called the senior pastor and confessed to him all that was going on. She got healed that afternoon. She was back to work the next day, the next day, and everything worked out. But I thought to myself, that was such an amazing thing. And, you know, what I learned in this whole idea of authority is that God gives authority to his people. Everyone has authority. Everyone's, everyone has a measure of authority, and everyone's called to be under authority. And what he's given to you and what he's given to me is ours to exercise for his glory and for his sake. And so Peter was given authority, authority in the kingdom of God. The question is, is specifically in what way or measure or context did he have authority? Over what and over whom? This authority, of course, is the authority to bind and to loose. The whole idea of, of being given authority so that you can bind or loose is a part of what we find in Judaism that precedes the first century and comes down to us to this day. In rabbinic literature, it's in reference to hal halakhic rulings that govern the community. How do we live as the people of God? Well, that has to be sorted out. Life is very complicated. There's all these different spheres that we have in life, right? 
business, family, church, civil government. There's all these different areas, right? How do we live our life? What does God expect of us? Well, those in authority have the authority to interpret the text and to make application, to give us ways to apply that text to our lives so that we as a community can live in unity within the context of Torah, the new way of living. Now in the first century, uh, basically where that resided was the temple and the synagogue. You had the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, which made rulings that governed the life of the people of Israel. And as you went down to the local level, every synagogue had rabbis and elders that helped people understand the text, how to apply it to their lives, and also resolved conflict within the community. This is where the authority to govern Israel resided. What we have in this passage is a shift of that power and that authority. Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, I'm going to grant you, Peter, first and foremost, authority to bind and to loose, to interpret the text and apply the text. You're the one that has the authority initially in the kingdom of heaven, in my little flock. Peter would decide who could enter or not enter the kingdom of heaven based on the proclamation of the gospel and whether a person was repenting and believing Yeshua or not. This would be extended. A number of scholars make the case, but it could be extended to even the forgiveness of sin. In John chapter 20 and verse 23, it says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's a lot of authority. I get the authority to bind and to loose, to interpret the text and to give application, to say what is forbidden or what is permitted. The authority to resolve conflicts within the community. That's a lot of authority. But to withhold forgiveness of sin? That's, that's huge. Now, no matter which way we slice it, the authority that's given to Peter is immense. It's a lot of authority. Even if you don't include this la later part of forgiveness of sin, it still represents a lot of authority. But the early church... This movement of Jesus, this reconstituted remnant of Israel, right? They would need someone to lead the way, to help interpret the Torah, prioritize it, and make application for the ecclesia, for the followers of Yeshua. Just like the temple and the synagogue, the ecclesia, the churches of Messiah would need this too. And so Yeshua is transferring his authority to Peter. Now, we'll, we'll see some things that are interesting as we move on, but let's just make a note here that the temple and the synagogues rejected Jesus. And they not only rejected Jesus, they rejected his Jewish followers as well. So in many ways, they would no longer have a place to gather. This is why Jesus says, I'm coming to gather them myself and to build them up. 
This is why he uses the term ecclesia versus synagogue. Synagogue was a well-established term. Do you ever wonder why he doesn't call them synagogues? Well, the synagogue rejected his authority. The synagogue would have nothing to do with his authority. He takes a wholly different term, ecclesia, which is found in the Septuagint, still very Jewish, but somewhat in contradistinction to the term synagogue because he's going to build his own congregations. He's going to build up the remnant of Israel. And so he's going to give his leadership authority to rule and reign in his kingdom over his people. Keep in mind that in the temple in the synagogue, the Gentiles are held at bay. They too are not warmly accepted, at least not on equal footing. So Jesus creates a brand new institution, his own institution, his own ecclesia, so both Jews and Gentiles on equal footing can come together in one new man and govern themselves, representing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if we go a little bit further, we're going to find out that this authority that was given to Peter is also given to the other apostles. The disciples of Jesus are the audience here in Matthew chapter 18. And the context is church discipline. So here's the other disciples gathered, and this is what Jesus has to say. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is called governing the body. We're going to have problems. We're going to have breakdowns in relationship. We're going to have offenses. Sometimes we're going to need in resolving those conflicts. The authority's been given to resolve those matters. We're reading about it in Matthew 18. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you, the community, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, truly I say to you, context, his disciples, it's a bigger group than just Peter now, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The same authority given to Peter is now extended to the other apostles. He's building his team of leaders, the, the, the apostles, and then later the elders of all those communities. They all share in this authority to govern his people within his kingdom. They have the authority now to create halaha. They get to prioritize the Torah and say what's weightier and what's lighter. They get to determine how we live our lives. This is a whole new revolution, if you will, within Israel through the Messiah. Again, this binding, this loosing includes judging a matter, and making rulings that result in the guilt and discipline of an individual or his innocence. Every community will have conflicts and issues that need to be addressed. And the elders of each community are empowered and responsible to address the issues. They govern the community. They make the decisions. Sometimes these relate to bringing discipline to members. Their rulings are authoritative and binding, just as they are in the synagogue 
or the temple. So if you're, if you're in a rabbinic form of Judaism, you understand. Your community, through the elders, has the power to govern communal life. Why would that be any different in one of the congregations of Yeshua? The structure's the same. It's that the power broker is the Messiah, and he determines who has the authority. And he grants that to the elders of each community. We find that later in the epistles. Heaven is the origin of the authority and the guiding factor in determining the outcome. This is why he says, and we'll get down to it, that he is there in the midst of the elders. Verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This context is church discipline. It's not a prayer meeting. This whole, whole idea that, well, if there's two or three together, they can ask anything in the name of Jesus. You know, this is a prayer meeting. What? No, the context is church discipline via the elders. It's where two or three elders are gathered together in my name. I'm there to give the ruling. What you shall have bound on earth was already bound in heaven. I'm there. I've got the ruling. I got the decision. And if the elders are open to me, together, we will give the proper decision. The context is church discipline, not a prayer meeting. Can you imagine having to have two or three people together with you to ask something in the name of the Father? What happens if you're riding away in some prison somewhere by yourself? <laughs> you're out of luck. Takes two or three. No, it only takes one to pray. This is about church discipline and the elders ruling in the communities of Messiah. So in summary, the kingdom of God has been given to the little flock of Messiah, which is not so little anymore, right? But the kingdom, the power, the glory, the authority has been given to the little flock, the Israel within Israel, the remnant of Jewish believers, those, those whom Yeshua gathered to himself as the ecclesia or church of God. And then later, it includes the believing Gentiles who were also gathered to them. These two are included in the ecclesia. They all have been given. We all have been given the keys of the kingdom. We have the authority to rule and reign with Jesus in his kingdom, in our communities. To us, the kingdom has been given. All of us. Every local church is a recipient of this beautiful kingdom of God. Its authority, its power, its glory. The kingdom of God was not given to the temple nor the synagogue leaders. It was given to the followers of Yeshua the Messiah, Peter, the other apostles, and later the elders that were established in all of his communities. This is where the kingdom of God resides. It resides in the church. It resides in the midst of his followers, Jewish believers first, and also the Gentile believers. So let's make some application. Seeing that the kingdom is given to the local church, should I join one? That's the big question, right? If the kingdom of God is given to the church, then it operates in and through the church. Yeah, that's why we should join a church. Well, I'm already part of the universal church. 
Well, when you read the church throughout the epistles, the reference is never to some type of universal church. It's always in reference to a local church. That's how the apostles viewed it and understood it. That there's all these local churches everywhere which comprise the church of God, but it's spoken of within locales. The local church is everywhere people are gathered in his name that are meeting for worship at the appointed times. They meet for worship, instruction, formation, fellowship, resources, safety, and connectedness. Shabbat and the appointed times are commanded corporate gatherings. So when the people of God gather, there's the church. And where the church is, is the kingdom, is the glory, is the redemption that's promised by God through his son. And how do we govern ourselves? Well, we govern ourselves the same way we've been doing since the days of Moses. We govern ourselves through our appointed elders. We invest in them the authority to govern our lives. We consent to their rulings that we might not like at times, but that's what safeguards our joy, our relationship, our futures. We do that through qualified local elders and fivefold ministries. The Apostle Paul says to Titus in chapter 1 of his book, verses 4 and 5, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city I directed you. Paul's been birthing congregations. Most of those are house churches. He says, all right, I'm out of here, Titus. I want you to follow through now with what I started. Go and appoint elders in all of these communities. Without elders, they're not really fully a local representation of the church. It needs governance to stay united and in order to grow. Go and, and, and appoint elders in all of these new congregations. How shall we exercise authority, the authority of our king? In Messiah, we are all called to exercise authority and to also be under authority. Every one of us has been given a mandate from heaven with the authority to carry that out. We don't do that as individuals. We do that together, corporately, working together with our gifts and our talents. And together we exercise the authority of the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news, the forgiveness of God, and granting that forgiveness through that proclamation and bringing people into a relationship in a local community where they can be discipled. That's the authority that we've been given. It's a glory that has associated with it the redemption of the ages. That's why Jesus said, when you go and proclaim the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. I've given you authority over every authority in heaven and on earth. Go and free the captives. Know that you're empowered to do so. Heaven stands behind you. Go and do this work. And this glory that's been given to you, don't let it go to your head. Who you are, you're a royal you're a child of God. You're going to inherit the nations. But don't get heady. Don't look down at people. No, in humility, with great rejoicing, 
Go and set the captives free. Go and gather the downtrodden. Go and heal the hurting. And let them know that they too are called to be my children, to be dignitaries. In humility and grace and love, serve one another. Serve one another and reach out to the lost who need this glorious salvation. Shabbat Shalom.